Alex Philadelphia. It takes a lot to make him happy, and he is clearly pleased. She's up, she's moving nicely. She's got a hit. Yes! Sally Stable, 132.67, has won at least the medal. She's 0.24 up. Beauty! On the ice for the Gimlet. The Gimlet Welcome back to Off The Podium, an Olympics podcast as we come to you for a very special and exciting episode that I know you are going to love. It is episode 49 of Off The Podium. I only mention that because we will have something special coming to you for our next episode, which we will talk a little bit about at the end of this one. But you don't want to get to the end of this episode. You haven't even heard this episode yet. You are about to hear an interview I did with the legendary Devon Harris, one of uh, the most, I guess, uh, iconic Olympians of the last 30 or so years. He was a member of the Jamaican bobsled team that competed at the 1988 Calgary Olympics, also then went on to compete in the two-man bobsled at the 92 Alberville Games and the 1998 Nagano Winter Olympics. And, of course, many people know the whole story of the Jamaican bobsled team from the 1993 film Cool Running, such a great film. Any fan of the Olympics no doubt has seen it on multiple occasions. And we reached out to the Jamaican bobsled team. We were put in contact with Devon, and here we are having a chat with him. Great chat, inspirational chat about how he got into the Olympics, sort of the, the truth behind the Jamaican bobsled team compared to the movie, even his experiences working on the film, and then just the status currently of the Jamaican bobsled team heading in towards Pyeongchang Chang in 2018. So uh, I'm going to shut up because you want to hear from Devon. Here it is. My interview I did with the legendary, the iconic Devon Harris of the Jamaican bobsled team. Massive pleasure to be able to welcome our next guest here to Off the Podium. He was one of the original four members of the Jamaican bobsled team that competed in the 1988 Calgary Winter Olympic Games and went on to compete in a further two Olympics in 1992 and 1998 and currently is serving uh, still trying to find the next big thing when it comes to Jamaican bobsledding and in the hopes that they can grace the podium at Pyeongchang in 2018. Please welcome to Off the Podium, Devin Harris. Devin, it is a massive honor to have you here on the show today. Hey, man. Great to be on the show, man. Usually I'm on the podium, though, so um, <laughs> it's just cool, though, that I'm off the podium tonight. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, in relation to myself, it's kind of, you know, that, that often dream that I uh, sadly have never quite made the Olympics just yet. So you can uh, you can help me get on that podium, and then we can change our name yes. uh, when that finally happens one day. <laughs> Well, there's uh, there's always beer pong. We can try that. Well, you know? look, the day that becomes an Olympic sport, I definitely have a shot at finally making the Olympics. So there we go. Um, that Just, is... <laughs> let's let's keep hope alive. Yes, exactly, exactly. But look, this is a this is a huge pleasure, a huge honor because um, I, I have to say that. As a, as a child growing up, obsessed with the Olympics, you know, uh, there's, there's a whole, obviously, a lot of media when it comes to certain things. And I've got to say, you grow up on films such as Cool Runnings. So you know the whole story behind the Jamaican bobsled team and everything along these lines and sort of reading the history of the team, learning the true story. And the fact that if you had have gone back to me when I was a very young boy and said, one day, Ben, you will get to chat to one of these guys that uh, was part of that uh, the story that was that I, I would not have believed it so i that's i just have to say from a young child within myself here devon it's it's a it's a huge honor because this is this the scary thing i think about this is is that next year uh the pyeongchang 2018 olympic games this is the 30th anniversary of this entire legacy the yeah, story behind it i mean how does that feel every time somebody brings that up <laughs> 
Oh man, my back is hurting every time someone <laughs> mentions that. I mean, I mean, you know, I clearly remember when I used to think a 30-year-old man was old, and now we're talking about something that I did 30 years ago, dude. You know, that's. But but you know what? The, the, the fact that we did that, what we did, and um, it still resonates with with people all over the world. I mean, I'm I'm here in New York speaking to you down in Australia. Um, it, it leaves you flattered, and but you know, and I'm appreciative for the fact that uh, you know people still remember. Uh, but it also leaves me proud because it meant that we did something significant, something that um, you know touched people at a deep, deeper level. So it's pretty cool. And for yourself, of course, because I mean, you'd always, I guess, had that dream to compete in the Olympics. I believe sort of your goal was to be a, a runner in, in Los Angeles. And obviously, you know, went a bit full circle when it came to going into a different type of Olympics four years later. So, I mean, even I guess going back to what I was saying about if I could go back to my younger self and say what I'd be doing right now, if you could go back to your younger self and say, you will be an Olympian one day, Devin, but perhaps uh, not around the type of track you're thinking you will be going towards. <laughs> That's true. I mean, you know, I, I joke all the time that, you know, the the problem with, you know, being born and grow, grow, and raised in Jamaica is, you know, everybody sprints fast except me. And I really yeah. wanted to win something, man. And it wasn't going to be another sprints and discovered 800 meter runner, running. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I curiously didn't know about the winter sports and bobsledding until my final year in high school, I was in sixth form. Um, so I was 19, uh, and the Olympics were in Sarajevo. And, and curiously enough, four years later, here I am competing in those same Winter Olympics um, in a sport that I, you know, barely knew anything about. But that's the stuff that dreams are made of, though. Um, you know, you, you, I did harbor Olympic aspirations, and... You know, you go pursue them, and life has a way of throwing some wonderful curveballs your way. And you know, Bob Sutton was one of my wonderful curveballs. So I'm, I'm I'm appreciative to the universe. Because basically, how this came about, uh, I believe you were in the military, and you you saw a, an ad essentially saying that they were wanting people to to form this Jamaican bobsled team. I mean, for those who aren't in the know, no, it quite didn't uh, happen like in the movie, I guess when. Uh, you know, there's a John Candy showing a video. <laughs> I mean, there was, I think, a bit more to it than that. So, I mean, is that is that basically how it came about? You saw this ad and thought, hey, cool, I'll give this a shot? Well, I saw the ad and thought, this is the most ridiculous idea ever <laughs> conceived by man. That was my first thought. I'm like, and I honestly remember saying, nobody could ever get me to go on one of those things. And, and you know, that remained true for me until my colonel suggested that I tried out for the team. And, you know, when you're a, a second lieutenant and a colonel makes a suggestion, it's not like you have the luxury of accepting or declining. <laughs> and um, so, you know, um, I, and, it, and look, the colonel suggested that I went to the team trials, not so much because he thought I was this exceptional athlete, but there was this philosophy in the Army that says... Mm officers must always participate and he had a bunch of you know enlisted men going to the team trials and so he figured he'd send his young fit officer to you know make up numbers and um i kind of spoiled it for him because i don't think he was expecting me to make the team but hey i did you did um i did you know and and so so here we are now the stuff with with john candy is kind of an interesting story um, so in the movie, you know, there are a room full of bobsledders are watching, you know, footage of crashes. And then at the end of the view in the room, it's empty. In real life, about 40 of us turned up that day and, you know, saw some crashes that were um, even more spectacular than the ones um, that were in the movie to include people getting killed. Um, and then the next day, only about half that number turned up for wow. the team trials, you know. I just thought I'm like, ah, I don't think this is my route to the Olympics at all. <laughs> so there was, I guess, some um, slight truth in, in the fact, except as you said, half showed up. Maybe not just the, you know, the one that was sitting back in the room that we saw in the movie. <laughs> Precisely, you know, and and that was what I guess I don't know if you call it genius, but one of the things they did in the movie, apart from they did make up some stuff downright, outright, 
but they did um, take the truth and stretched it as well yeah. to make it funny. And that's kind of, I guess, the, the thing that, you know, when you get to that point, I find, particularly growing up, sort of loving the movies, like, you do get to that point where you're like, look, I, I want to learn the story about this, and it leads you then to, I guess, fully understanding just exactly, uh, you know, what happened. And, I mean, you know, all the, the things that they stretch, it's still obviously a fascinating story that's clearly worth making a movie out of. And it's just, it's incredible, I think, kind of, you know, just the story behind everything. We'll get to sort of more of that, I guess, a little bit later on. But, I mean, heading into the Olympics and you've been selected, you're heading to Calgary. What was the reaction like from from the Jamaican public, I guess, going into that, given, you know, obviously the history with Jamaica was really athletics when it came to the Olympics. And as you kind of were saying, you know, Winter Olympics, not really a thing in Jamaica. So was there actually support from the public? Was this a thing that was publicised, that you guys were going to the Olympic Games in, in Calgary? Yeah, I think, you know, it was all happening so fast, man. If you, if you think about it, the team got selected in September 87, we first saw ice in October 87. Um, we're in Calgary, went, went to, um, Innsbruck, Austria, then went home for Christmas. Um, and then, and then left for Lake Placid and then the Olympics in, left for Lake Placid in January 88. And then the Olympics in February. Um, so we didn't spend a lot of time in Jamaica during that, that, that time period. Um, so, so even as we were learning how to do the sport, Jamaica was learning about the sport as well. <laughs> wow. And, um, the, the thing for sure is though is that Jamaica and Jamaicans are very supportive of, of their teams, no matter what it is, you know? And so I, you know, it was one of those situations that where people were like, bobsledding, you know, what's that? Oh, okay. All right. Fine. And, if we have a team, we're supported. So that's how that worked. And was were the Olymp- were the Winter Olympics um, televised in Jamaica, sort of before Calgary, or did this kind of lead them to finally being televised in the country? I don't think televised in, during Calgary, and they were never televised um, before that. You know, like like I said, I I um I le- I learned of the Winter Olympics in 1984, and it was really. Um, only because it was in the news at the time in terms of current affairs, um, but certainly thing that was on on television. Um, you know, I've lived in Jamaica for a while now, but I I don't know that the Winter Olympics are being televised in Jamaica. You may you definitely get news reports, but it's it's not like the Summer Olympics where you know every single day during the Olympic Games you're getting an event or two. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting to think that, um, you know, with the success, obviously, that you guys brought in terms of just that, the eyes opening there, that, um, you know, I might have assumed then that they would have gone like, oh, let's go let's go winter crazy, I guess. But um, it's sort of not quite there <laughs> not just quite. yet. <laughs> we still have a little ways to go to get to, to catch up to the Summer Olympic team. Yep, yep. I mean, it's sort of, I mean, going sort of based on a lot of what we saw in the movie in terms of just, I guess, what was, you know, told the story. I mean, the, the, the John Candy character, I guess, was loosely based on your coach, Howard Siler. I mean, he was a former Olympic bobsledder for the US, you know, came sort of with this idea that basically led to the Jamaican bobsled team, because I believe he, he saw that on the, on the pushcart derby, which we see in the movie, and then kind of took that idea. What was what was Howard like as your coach going into those games? And what kind of advice was he giving you, really, to kind of take this idea of his and put this into reality at those Olympics? So, actually, the, the idea of the team wasn't that of Howard. It was um, two other Americans, George Fitch and William Maloney. They lived in Jamaica, had business and family connections there, and they saw the pushcart and, and go, well, you know, that's like Bob selling except for the ice, you know, two crazy guys <laughs> down the side of a mountain um, in a cart. And, and in the process, they were introduced to Howard. Siler, and um, who lived in Lake Placid, so we went up to Lake Placid and met him. And I mean, he he did a really good job of um, you know introducing us to the sport. You know, told us you know just a, a lot of backstories uh, of of you know what the sport was like. I mean, he competed himself for many years, um, and then he just you know he expertly. Um, led us and, and, and nurtured us into, you know, learning this brand new sport in such a, a really short space of time. And it's not, wasn't just about 
the technical aspects of the sport, but Howard was uh, a psychologist of sorts. And um, so, you know, just, just the way he spoke was uh, a lot about the mental preparation because bobsledding is as mental as it is physical. Um, you know, so, so that was really important uh, to us, certainly for me. And it's, you know, some of those things that have, um, you know, I was, you know, you're at 20 years old, 21 years old, you're still kind of forming some of your life philosophies, you know, and I was able to take some of that from Howard and, and what I learned about bobsledding in those early years to kind of help me move my life forward. And had you experienced snow and cold weather before you ventured to Lake Placid? Was this something you'd experienced through your time in the military at all? Yeah, man. So um, not not a ton load of cold, of snow, um, but, but I was trained at Sandhurst, the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst in England. And look, if you know anything about England, you know it's damn cold. Um, so they, actually, you know, we're, it's May, right? My first time in England was, uh, was May, 85, and it's spring, but if you're coming from, you know, tropical climate in Jamaica, you, it feels like it's winter. Um, but I, I tell you, it's, it's, you know, living out in the cold when I was there, um, is much harder than bobsledding in the cold, you know, so. Uh, I guess my military training was good preparation for something I didn't know I was going to be doing a couple of years later. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, I mean, having you sort of mentioned before how you kind of always harboured those desires to be an Olympic athlete, you're at the Olympics finally. What was, I guess, kind of the vibe from yourself, you know, before the competition and really getting to experience this dream that you had had within yourself for some time? Yeah, it's an an amazing experience, man. Um, I think... (laughs) The, the the one that jumps out at me all the time is you know marching in the opening ceremonies. So just imagine that you grew up you know watching the Olympic Games and you see these men and women marching in the in the stadium and um and you're looking at them going wow you know those are some of the best athletes in the world I wish I could do that and then one day you set foot in the stadium and you're seeing a crowd of fifty thousand people or so I mean shoulder to shoulder jam pack. I promise you more cameras than you can count. And and you know in that moment that your image is being flashed across television screens all over the world. And, you know, there's probably, you know, some little guy or girl looking at you in that moment saying, wow, he must be one of the best athletes in the world. I wish I could be like him, you know. Um, it comes full circle. And in that moment, you're living your dream. It's just... You know, it's, it's you're just living your dream, and it's like, wow, here it is. I'm 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 finally here. And um, being in the Olympic Village was um, a really awesome experience as well, eye-opening in many ways. Um, because you know, I am schooled in the art of war, and I just fresh from um, officer training, and and so you're told, and and, and in, in 1988, the world was still at the height of the Cold War. And and so you're told that everybody behind the Iron Curtain was evil. And and here I am, I'm in the Olympic Village, I'm in the um the sport the games arcade, because it's pre internet, so we don't have cyber cafes. And it's really archaic, man. I mean like dinosaur age, right? <laughs> but but I'm in the I'm in the game arcade and I'm killing the pack man and I'm a, I'm really good at pack. I can't do any of the other stuff that these guys have now. <laughs> uh, but next to me, you know, on one end is a one to my left is a guy from Poland, and on my right is a guy from East Germany. You know, people behind the Iron Curtain were supposed to be evil, and you're seeing them um, up close and personal for the first time in your life, and you're realizing that, you know what, these guys are just like me. I mean, they same, they share the same dreams and aspirations. You know, they want to do the best for their country as I want to do mine. And and when you really think um, deeply about this, you realize that the, the really true difference between us is ideology, you know? And and so that was a eye-opening uh, moment for me. Yeah, it's an interesting way of looking at that. Yeah, I never sort of kind of thought about that, how that would have been. And, I mean, it's, it's kind of sort of, I guess, the perspective is that people – 
might have looked at you guys and thought like, well, what are you guys doing here? You know, Jamaica and the Winter Olympics, but it's kind of from the opposite side of things, you know, as you're saying, like sort of especially coming from that military background because you're still in the military at this point as well. Like it's not like you've left the military because you went back to the military after the Olympics, didn't you? Yes, I was. I, I never left. Yeah, I went back. You mean I went back to duty after the Olympics? Yeah, I was still in the military. That's right. Yeah, no. So it's it's you, you know, and unfortunately, I mean, that kind of thinking exists today. You know, thirty years later, you know, and it comes down to hey, what what are the real differences between us? I mean, we we have so much more in common than than readily meets the eye. You know, and so yeah, so that was an I an eye-opening um, moment for me. I mean, in obviously one aspect, I guess, sort of in the lead-up to the Games, that I guess at least was portrayed in, in the movie as such, is sort of the, the struggles with you guys getting there when it came to the financial aspects of things. But, I mean, this, again, is, I believe, is something slightly different. It wasn't... Was it that much of a struggle for you guys to get there financially, or was that kind of all looked after, I guess, when it came to getting to the Olympic Games? No, it was a struggle, and it continues to be a struggle, strangely enough. Um, cause I think George Fitch, when, when he came up with the idea and he began to, began to execute it, just kind of assumed that because it was, it would have been such a novel idea that corporate, um, sponsors would just be beating down the door. Well, guess what? They never came. And, um, and, and I remember us being in Austria, um, and actually, we heard about this from the Australians that, they, you know, they had a team prior to ours. And, and one of the things that they did was that they sold T-shirts. So we're like, if it's, if it's good enough for the Aussies, let's do it. <laughs> so we made shirts. And, um, and I remember, you know, going into a club at night in Austria and boogieing up beside a couple um, with a bag of shirts under my arm, whipping one out and go, hey, man, you want to buy a shirt? <laughs> and uh, you know, the guy says no, the girl says yes, and he ends up paying, and we got dinner the next day. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, you know, it's just one of those. It, it was a challenge financially for sure. So, so was there uh, then kissing booths and arm wrestling matches and uh, songs on the street? So, <laughs> you know, I, I I told you that um, you know Hollywood took a lot of poetic licensing <laughs> and they, they made the, the straight up made up some truths and. I'm thinking, why didn't we think of the kissing <laughs> booth? I mean, I would have volunteered. <laughs> well, hey, look, in terms of this crowdfunding campaign uh, that you've got going at the moment, you still can, and you can come up with, like, the sequel to, you know, some people, mm -hmm. they, they, they can't believe. <laughs> That's a thought. And you know what? Good idea. I'm going to have to work on that. Yeah, yeah. But, there you go. I'm sure my wife. I'm sure my wife would find that um, in funny or acceptable. <laughs> we won't tell her. We won't tell her. It's okay. You know, it's all for the good cause of the Jamaican bobsled team. I'm sure she'll understand. She's seen the movie, don't out. Oh, right. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. All right, it's cool. That's what I'll do. Yeah, yeah, good idea. But I mean, obviously during the Olympics, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, the the performance of you guys. I mean, you, you went in there. I mean, everything that I guess sort of led up to to performance and all that sort of the brief time that you guys had had out there on track and practicing when it came to that first run how how was that in terms of what you were expecting it to be because this says kind of you're going back to saying it's you know it's the peak of the sport it's it's the biggest stage in the world here you are you're getting to put all that practice and all that training into into right then and there and you do that first run Take us through that. How is that feeling when you cross that line at the end of that first run? Huh. Really good question. You know, um, the thing most people don't realize about, well, and I suppose as we were talking about a four-man here now, the, we were not entered in the four-man event uh, before the Olympics. It was the week of the, the four-man event in Calgary that we decided that we would do four-man. We did two-man prior, and that was all we were supposed to do. Um, so part of it was, well, it was, was kind of a sense of accomplishment because we had never raced four man before. Um, you know, and it was like, okay, all right. So we have a, we have a hang of this now. Let's, let's, let's really go for it kind of thing, you know? Um, an interesting question, but yeah, we, we, um, we had never done it before. And, um, although we had some training runs during the Olympics leading into that, um, yeah. It, it was, yeah, all right. We 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 can do this. So let's let's see what kind of damage we can do for the next uh, three runs. And and I could imagine, 
you know, besides the obvious answer of there's two extra men in a sled as opposed to the two men, that's sort of the main difference between the four men. I'm guessing, though, that there are subtle technicalities involved when it comes to having extra men in the sled and sort of there are differences a lot more than somebody like me on the outside can tell when it comes to four men and two men. And that obviously then came into play that you've been preparing for the two men, but then all of a sudden, hey, we've got to do prepare for the four men. Precisely. It, it, the, the four-man is considered the premier bobsled event. Um, and it's so exciting, a race. But um, it requires such a high level of teamwork and coordination, you know, trying to um, get four guys, four big guys in a tiny sled, you know, sprinting downhill um, at, at full speed um, is, is a, a, it's a thing of beauty, a work of art, and... and just one of the highest forms of teamwork that you can see in our sport. And the crash that uh, we see in the movie, that, of course, happened uh, during during the games itself. And, I mean, obviously a very disappointing way to to end sort of your, your time there. But I guess what really showed at the end of it is you guys still got out, the crowd started cheering, you didn't carry the, the sled over the line, you did push it over the line. Uh, and I mean, I guess that kind of is really what endeared you a lot to to many people, not only there in Calgary, but of course watching it on there. Was that kind of something that, again, despite the fact that you crashed out of the Olympics, you still held your head high because you get had that sense of accomplishment that you went into these games as complete underdogs, you know, Jamaican bobsled team, but here you are leaving it with this this level of respect that I guess you guys probably didn't even imagine you would have had going into those games. Yeah. I mean, it's something that um, I hold my head high about today. Um, in the moment, I, I was just trying to exit stage left, man. And I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, I mean, that's a failure. And to be failing, um, and, and, and you have to expect to fail, but to be failing in front of the entire world is not necessarily something that any of us sign up to do. But that's exactly what happened to us. And in a way... Um, I mean, a couple of things, you know, one and first and foremost, we kind of felt that we had let down an entire nation. I mean, here it is that we're representing a country that is um, nurtured on this, um, you know, excellence in the Olympic Games. And here it is that these four fools have come and crashed and embarrassed the nation. And so it's like, wow, you know, uh, and that's what I thought about. Honestly, when I was sliding down on my head, I'm like, wow, how embarrassing. Uh, and then we we had also given credence to those people who felt we didn't belong. You know, it's like you know they're like no, they're like oh, they're, I told you, I told you they didn't belong. But the people in Calgary uh, that day, they were amazing, man. As we we're walking down the breaking stretch, you know, trying to put the best face forward as possible, um, people just started to cheer and uh, you know we love you. And I remember one guy reached over and shook my hand and, uh, you know, I was leading the pack and I was literally shaking every hand as as we walked down, trying to get down, uh, get off the track. So that kind of, you know, softened the sting a little bit. But now looking back, um, yes, it, it was an amazing achievement, an amazing, amazing accomplishment. I mean, I just told you that it, that was our first race ever. I mean, who does that? Who has their first major competition at the Olympic Games? You know, but that's what that's what we did. And, you know, we were coming off the hill with the seventh fastest start time after only a week of training. And so when you look on the totality of of what we attempted and what we finally accomplished, yes, it's something to be proud of. You mentioned there were people there, I guess, that, yeah, felt that sort of, that you didn't belong there. Was... I guess there, how was the fellow competitors' reaction to you guys being there? Was it as negative as we saw in the movie? Was it split? I mean, kind of, how did your other competitors from the other sledding teams treat you guys when you arrived in Calgary? Yeah, no, so the stuff you saw in the movie is totally fabricated. We, you know, we didn't have that kind of experience. And quite frankly, I don't know of any athlete who treats a fellow athlete that way. Um, especially at the Olympic Games. This is the most important race in four years. And nobody's going to, um, I can't imagine anybody would want to waste their energy complaining about a team who shouldn't be there when that is not going to contribute 
to the possibility of them winning the most important race in four years. So I think um, overall, people, um, I, I won't say that people are going out of their way to be supportive of us. They, they were there racing. Um, but I think they also appreciated us being there. Uh, you know, I, I tell the story all the time, and I think it's um, Wolfgang Hoppe, who at the time was the best driver in the world, the East German of all people, of all countries, in the sense that, um, again, it was the height of the Cold War. It was them against us. They were never mingling. And I remember him as I was sitting in the warm house, just kind of, you know, wide-eyed, um, looking around and soaking in the environment. He just handed me, he smiled and handed me an Olympic pin. Wow. And, you know, yeah, and, and, you know, and the worst part of that story, I don't have the pin. I don't know where it is. Uh. Um, terrible. Um, but yeah, it, and that was saying to me, you know, dude, you know, welcome. You're a part of the brotherhood. That, that, that's the message I took from that, you know? Fantastic. And what was in the reception like when you returned back home, home to Jamaica? <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. Um, we were worried. Because, like I said, we thought we had a fear the country and people would have been pissed. But they were supportive, man. I mean, in ways that we could never have imagined. Um, I, I guess the ultimate compliment is the government making stamps with our faces on it. Wow. You know? so, so that was kind of cool, yeah. And I don't, by the way, I don't have any of those stamps either. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they would be collectors' item, I can imagine. I mean, in in Australia, they um, whenever I know we win a, a gold medal in either winter or summer, that sort of the next day, our postal service produces, you know, the winning gold medalist on a, on a stamp. That's kind of an honour you get for winning a gold medal here. But um, that's yeah. yeah, that's that's crazy. That's 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 such an honour. You can literally say, "People lick the back of my head and put me on letters." Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. oh, no, no. It's a weird thing yeah. to say to people, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, today they don't do that. They just send emails. Yeah. yeah back then. Back then. Eh? <laughs> yes, back back then. But I mean, of course, as I sort of mentioned in, in the introduction, I mean, you went on to compete in a further uh, two more Olympics yourself personally. I mean, Jamaica obviously competed, uh, you know, in multiple Olympics from this day, most recently, of course, in Sochi a couple of years ago. But I mean, you went into 92, you went into to 98 as well, and I believe you were in the two-man at this stage. So how did that mindset, again, going back to sort of when we were talking about the differences between the four and two, was this more of something that I guess you felt it was it was better for yourself or would have you preferred to have been in a four-man situation still in those two more Olympics? Yeah, I, I would have wanted to do four-man as well. Well, I, the thing is I went, I became a driver. So in, in 88, I was... a um, number two pusher on the four-man team, but I became a driver, and um, so I ended up driving two-man in those Olympics. And I, I, it was more again because of the funding than anything else. We couldn't afford two sleds, two four-man sleds, and and so on. So it's, it was cheaper to have two guys as opposed to four. And I guess that the legacy that that created, moving then into '92 in Albaville based off kind of success and everything, I guess, in terms of just the, the attention and notoriety that it, that it gained. Because, I mean, obviously, we should mention 92, still a year before Cool Runnings even came out. So, I guess even on a wider perspective, yeah. um, you know, it's still a, a story that isn't widely told as it would be a year later. Did much change going in, into Albaville in 92 in terms of funding and, and reception? Was it, was it easier? Was it still on the same sort of level in terms of getting to those games? It, it was um, the fun. We had more funding, but we still had far from enough. Um, we had more knowledge, more experience, you know, as, as opposed to four months. We now had four years. Um, you know, our team grew um, because now we had, you know, Dudley, our driver from from um, from Calgary, and I became a driver as well. Um, and we actually did try. And develop a couple of other guys uh, to become drivers uh, during the period 88 to, to 92. Um, but I was uh, the other guy who emerged as a as a, the other guy who could actually qualify for the Olympic Games. So the program grew, but you know, not uh, you know, not I wouldn't say in leaps and bounds. But you still had, I guess, more people coming out of the woodwork and putting their hand up and saying, "Hey, I really want to get involved in bodsledding," as opposed to when it was initially announced before you went to Calgary. That's true. That that's absolutely true. Yeah, we ended up, um, 
you know, with a much bigger squad. And, and that's one of the reasons why I said, you know, that the funding improved, but still not at the level that we'd like it to have been. But we're able to, you know, bring more people into the sport, which is one of the reasons why I was able to drive as well. What was the reaction like when you found out that there's a movie going to be made out of this, you know, a Disney movie? I mean, it must be kind of a... A mix of emotions, because it's a cool thing. Hey, who gets to say they've had a movie based on them? But at the same time, what are you thinking with all that? Well, you know, it wasn't a sudden um, uh, thing. The, the, the process took about five years, actually. So, you, you know, and, and they all said, hey, they're gonna, they're gonna, we're going to approach Hollywood and have them make a movie. I'm like, right, cool. Um, and then, honestly, it's like every six months or so, you get a call, oh, they're filming, oh, they're not filming, oh, they're filming, oh, they're not filming, you know? And um, eventually, um, I, got, I got a call and go, hey, they're filming in Calgary, would you like to go? Wow. And, and yeah, flattering, flattering to be uh, on a Hollywood set watching them, you know, make a movie about a part of your life. I mean, that's the stuff that movies are made yep. of, you know? Yep. So did you get to, you got to meet the cast? Did you get to meet John Candy? Did you get to hang out with the guys at all? Yeah, man. I was, so I was on the set. I, I spent most of my time, honestly, with the stunt guys. Um, but yeah, didn't meet the cast. Didn't hang out with them um, on set anyway. Not not. We didn't, you know, go to restaurants or, or whatnot. But <laughs> they get a chance to chat with with with, with the cast in Calgary. So, so who then? Who who are you in that in that? So if you see, so you're not Doris because he's the driver. So Sunk is the brake man. So you're either Junior or Yule. I'm guessing technically, if you're the second. So is that was that Sank? And oh, no, so was that Junior? I can't remember who was the second one in Cool Runnings. Well, that's the thing. The characters in the movie are so different um, from real life characters. So I say I'm Yule Brenner, the bald headed guy, <laughs> but not because he, you know, he was a tough, mean guy, but he was a dreamer. Mm-hmm. He was a guy that wanted to go to Buckingham Palace to live. You know, uh, I'm, I'm a dreamer myself, so so I relate mostly to him. And I guess the question a lot of people would ask you too, uh, Devon, is uh, did any of you have a lucky egg? Um, no, we didn't have a physical lucky egg, but I kind of look at the, the, the lucky egg as, I mean, if you remember, the lucky egg was a thing that gave Sanka his confidence, you know? Um, and that's how I, I saw, so, you know, the, so we all have a lucky egg inside. And we kind of have to reach in to touch that to give us the courage to, to go off and do something that, that, that we find challenging. Good way, well, good way. No, no, I like that. No, like that, that that works out well. I mean, you you left, uh, you became a, a citizen, I believe, in '92. Uh, sort of your time in the military, and then obviously, uh, you know, as I said, competed in '92 games, uh, 1998 games. You, you you spend a lot of time at the moment as a motivational speaker, I believe, but you're also uh, involved still with the the Jamaican bobsled program. Did you maintain a position kind of with the Jamaican bobsled team essentially after you your last games in '98? Was this something that you kind of have just returned to? I mean. T- take us through kind of how you stayed involved with the program. Um, always been loosely involved. You know, after '98, I started, you know, my my career as a motivational speaker, and uh, you know, focused on that a lot. But but uh, you know, it's it's like you can't get away from it, man. You always get pulled back to to bobsledding, um, and then um, e- eventually. So I was always involved over the years. So it, it, not in any official capacity, but you know, always doing stuff. And then in 2014, right after Sochi, I uh, I took over the the program fully. And so you know, I'm I'm the guy kind of you know assuming the responsibility to, to develop the next generation of Jamaican bobsledders. And the current process, um, I know at the moment, which you know, I obviously talked to you about in a sec, the fact that you've got this crowdfunding campaign going at the moment in order to try and get that coach. But I mean, looking ahead to to Pyeongchang, because of course, as you mentioned, you were in Sochi, uh, so uh, it had I'd been I believe it'd been a bit of a, a bit of a break in between when Jamaica had been qualified for the Olympics, sort of between Sochi. I believe it had been since Salt Lake. You'd missed Torino and. And Vancouver, is that right? Yes, we, we we got to Salt Lake, so we did everything up until Salt Lake, Miss Torino, Miss Vancouver, and came back for Sochi. And uh, you guys, 29th, I believe you finished. So I mean, that's that's still obviously there's uh, you want to I guess improve from that, but I think 29th still that's still a pretty I guess decent finish. I mean, that's uh, you know top 30. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, and in fact, 
I mean, it's an okay result. It's, it's not um, something that we, we jump and kick our heels about, as, especially when you consider that in those in that very race, we, we had the fastest start time. We set the start record. You know, so um, you would have hoped for a better finish, to be honest. But uh, it's it's look, it's it's part of the process, right? Um, you know, we we got into the sport saying that hey, we we have the athletes, we can push a fast start time. And so, if there's one thing that has been consistent is that over the years we've always been a fast starting team. Um, it's just that we now need to work on the driving aspect to marry up the driving with the star to get a really good result. And that's obviously where this uh, the the crowdfunding's coming in for for a coach, I guess, to kind of to help with that. So uh, you got currently at the moment on GoFundMe, and we'll definitely link all this, of course, on our, our Facebook page for everybody to check out. So the goal at the moment is to is to reach sixty thousand dollars to get a coach help you then obviously towards uh Pyeongchang. I mean, who who are you looking for in a what are you looking for in a coach here, Devin? Let let's kind of put the sell out there for uh all our potential bobsleigh coaches that are listening here. Uh, I mean what's kind of the ideal match that you would like? Somebody who is that person who can help with the driving, with the the technical aspects after the start. I'm guessing that's the main thing you're looking for in a coach? That's what we're looking for. We're looking for um uh you know a, what we call a driving coach, which is separate from a strength and conditioning coach or, or a speed coach, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, when we, when we say we're looking for a coach, we're looking for someone who n- not only knows how to drive a bobsled, but can teach someone how to drive a bobsled. Uh, you know, I personally believe that a, a coach needs to be a teacher, a mentor, um, someone who can guide and, and, and help someone learn as opposed to stand and point and go go do this and so so yeah someone who has um the patience to understand that the our guys are still you know relatively young in the sport and so we need someone who can guide and nurture and teach them how to drive bobsleds and what's the process i guess between now and pyeongchang in 2018 in terms of qualification uh, uh i mean what sort of events because it's obviously different uh, to when you first went in calgary compared to how obviously you've got to get into the olympics now but is there a certain event is there a qualifying time how do you guys at least get that official tick that you will be going to the games next year right gotcha. no no qualifying times but there's a qualifying process um so generally speaking you have to do five races over two years on three different tracks leading into the olympic games we have essentially done that already um but this um, fall, um, starting November in this competition season, the, the key is going to be, you know, uh, what position you, you finish in each race. Um, it, for every, based on your position, you'll get a certain number of points. And at the end of it all, they will tally the points up, and that is going to basically determine which drivers and which nations qualify to compete in the olympic games that's a short answer and how i guess are you guys looking in terms of of positioning i mean what sort of i mean i guess is there a target that you're pushing for i mean i sort of have read in in some of the interviews sort of in the lead up to this with the crowdfunding that obviously a medal is is a target but i mean i guess is that the ultimate goal is that kind of what you really are pushing for to get on that top three or is there kind of another sort of goal there as well yeah, well, look, we, we, most people don't know we, we actually have a women's team as well. Um, Jasmine Fenlater, who competed in Sochi with Lola Jones for the U.S., she's Jamaican, and she's on our team. And, and we, we honestly see her as our best shot at, at winning a medal, so kind of pushing hard to get her the support to, to, to pull that off. Um but also on, on our men's side, look, they, they are young drivers. They, you know, they just started the sport in terms of driving in 2015 was the first time they drove a bobsled. So honestly, for them to just qualify for the Olympics would be a feat. Um, but we're pushing hard, pushing really hard to get that done. We also have a skeleton athlete and we've oh, wow. never had skeleton. Yeah. We've never had a skeleton athlete in the, in, in the Olympics, so so to get him qualified 
would also be historic. Fantastic. I, I love skeleton. That is uh, that is one sport that I'm just fascinated by because um, you got to have balls of steel to get on that thing. That is that is a terrifying well, looking uh, sport. Uh, <laughs> well, God, God bless you, man. I don't think I have any of those. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That is, um, yeah. But I, I, I watch TV, though. I watch. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's really crazy. And this is the thing that I love about the Winter Olympics is that you know, I guess similar to Jamaica, Australia, you know, we're not exactly the, you know, the biggest winter country in the world. So kind of, um, it's unique to see sports that I guess we're not familiar with. And I guess kind of growing up in Australia, you know, we didn't have a huge amount of coverage of the Winter Olympics. It's it's changed now. We do sort of get heavy coverage of it because, you know, we obviously are at a point now where we're winning medals. Whereas, I mean, you know, early 90s, we won our first one. Do, I mean, just, I mean, on that, does that, do you kind of look at countries, say, like in Australia, who I guess were in a very similar position to you guys in the fact that we had no winter success? I mean, obviously there are differences there, I guess, in terms of our funding and, and population and everything along those lines. But the fact that a country like Australia can go forward and, and you know, re- regularly now challenge for medals, is that kind of what you would like to see for Jamaica in the future and maybe following the steps of an Australia in the Winter Olympics? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I envision that, uh, that eventually our bobsled program um, is going to be there, uh, be one of the top teams in the sport. You know, and I joke all the time with my friends here in North America and you know, my Canadian and, and American friends because they've been very supportive of, of us and, you know, helping us to get on the track. And, and, and certainly in our sport, you know, Jamaica is seen as an emerging nation. We're in the group, group of emerging nation. And I, and I always, I often ask, Hey, so when we start beating you guys, <laughs> are we still going to be considered an emerging nation? <laughs> you know? With the gold medals and, around and your neck, that. it's like, is this? Are we time to be taken seriously now, guys? Like, <laughs> yeah, like Jamaica is an emerging nation because we don't have a bobsled track, and they're like, <laughs> emerging nation, my yeah. But you know, they they just won, they just won the Olympic gold medal. <laughs> you know, so it, it's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I had, I had to laugh. I, I heard an interview you did with uh, a Canadian radio station recently and uh, the host on that one asked about, obviously, you know, Usain Bolt. I'm sure that's a question you get asked all the time, you know, in terms of like, he's, you know, retired now from the Olympics. Can we sort of get him on the team for, for Pyeongchang? What, what would it, what would that be like if you legitimately, if for some reason he woke up tomorrow and was like, yeah, absolutely, I want to go and give this a crack. I mean, would he make a difference, I guess, is kind of the question or is it really down to back what you were saying? It it's the driving really. You've got the start down pat. You don't need a same bolt. Well, I mean, who doesn't need the same bolt? <laughs> <laughs> um, we could use him. Um, it would signif- It would make a significant difference at the start. Um, our driving is coming along, um, so the the start would definitely by far super supersede the driving. Um, it it could it could make the difference in terms of a couple of places, um, but I don't know that it's going to allow us to win, um, because we, I don't honestly think, um, and objectively speaking, we're we're there yet. Um, I think we, we're going to be there for for um, for Beijing um, in uh, in in 2022, but you know I don't think we're for the men's team. Ready to contend for a medal. Well, there's a fairy tale for a Saiyan Bolt. I mean, come on, he won his first golds in Beijing in 2008. I mean, wouldn't that just come full circle that he could come back in 2022, go back to Beijing? I mean, come on. Yeah. I, I agree with you, man, and, and that you're just giving me an idea because uh, the last time I spoke to him about this, he laughed. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but maybe he could be the, become the first guy ever to win an Olympic gold medal both winter and summer in the same city yeah look i mean there's so much history around it he seems to be like a man who likes his history so you know that's that's a selling point so get on to it devon i'm I'm making yeah yeah, and and when he wins that gold when he wins that gold i expect him to personally thank me i mean that's just what i ask that's all i ask that's that's simple Uh, that's not a lot (laughs) not at all not at all uh as i said we're going to put up this link for the the crowdfunding page on our on our website and on our facebook page and share it out there because obviously we we want to see you guys go there next year and succeed and and just get this coach behind you and of course there there is the jamaican bobsled team facebook page as well as how we got in touch with you guys and we very much appreciate uh 
this this happening and it, it's great to see this because it's it is one of those things that as i said as a, as a fan of the olympics and it's not just myself but people involved in this show and everybody else who kind of have grown up on this story such an inspirational story and and to me kind of jokingly saying about my desire to be at the olympics and I mean, even your story then, just saying about walking out the opening ceremony, that to me is, would be my achievement. I, of course, you would love to win a medal, but to me, just making the Olympics would be an achievement in itself. So it's such an inspirational story, Devon, and it's just been such a pleasure to be able to, to share this with you today. And this has seriously been such an honor, and I really thank you for your time today. No, I appreciate you, man. And, uh, thanks for reaching out, and uh, thanks for spreading the word about our program and what we're trying to accomplish in, in 2018. And just want to say hello to all of Australia. I haven't been there yet, but it's definitely on my list of places to visit. Such a, an absolute thrill. You heard me say it there towards the end and at the beginning of this uh, interview as well, just uh, how of a uh, much of an honor it was to chat to Devon and uh seriously I thank him and everybody involved in the Jamaican bobsled team for uh, organizing that for us and uh yeah easily one of the highlights uh I've ever had in terms of uh doing interviews it's such a pleasure to speak to him about uh everything that you just heard but uh moving forward we've still got interviews coming your way I know Colin is uh speaking to a few Canadian athletes coming up very soon we've got a few more Australian athletes in the lead up to Pyeongchang and uh this will obviously be an ongoing series as we head towards the games next Next year, but our next episode will be something a little bit special. It'll be our 50th episode, so we're going to take a look back at kind of the best bits we've had so far of off the podium. Uh, clearly, we had a lot of fun covering Rio last year, so there'll be a big, a bit of an emphasis in terms of sort of the best bits during those Rio uh, daily coverages that we did, as well as snippets from some of our uh, interviews that we have brought you uh, in the most recent months as well. So stay tuned to that. That'll be our 50th episode off the podium coming your way soon. If you do like what you hear, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. We are on Stitcher as well well remember to rate us and leave us feedback whilst you're there as well and if you're on facebook check us out our page off the podium podcast and uh, you can like us on there stay up to date with everything that we've got coming and if you're on twitter you can use the hashtag off the podium if you're listening to these interviews perhaps and uh, want to chat along along the way but once again my thanks go out to devon harris and the jamaican bobsled team for allowing this to happen today and we will be back next time for our 50th special our 50th anniversary our 50th birthday our 50th episode i've tried to make it sound a little bit more exciting than it actually is but still it's a big deal thank you for coming off the podium we'll speak to you next time